0: In 2009, a person using the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto created the world's first decentralized cryptocurrency. It's called Bitcoin. The digital currency was designed to be independent from government interference and to use a publicly shared list of transactions called a blockchain. Bitcoin's rise has spawned a new market, and today that market is valued at over $2 trillion. This is disrupted I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. In just over a decade, cryptocurrency has become a major force in our global economy, and some expect its power to grow. But how do you manage a decentralized technology? On this week's show, a look at crypto's biggest questions. We'll hear about the importance of black and brown voices in the industry and a conversation with an economist about El Salvador's troubled adoption of Bitcoin and what it may mean for the rest of the world. But first, a crash course with one of the country's foremost voices on crypto. Emily Parker is managing director at the financial tech site, CoinDesk. She's also co-host of the morning show, First Mover. She's here to talk about the landscape of cryptocurrency, what it looks like today and what it may look like in the future. Emily, welcome to Disrupted.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Your work centers on cryptocurrency and it is something that people across the globe are focusing on, but there may be a number of listeners here in the States who still don't really understand the basics of the technology. What's your elevator pitch to those people to help them understand cryptocurrency and Bitcoin?
2: Sure, I think that's true. I think there are a lot of people who still don't understand the value of cryptocurrency. I think the simplest way to explain it is that it is a decentralized form of money that is not controlled by any government or bank. And it was created at a time right around the financial crisis, right after the financial crisis, when a lot of people had lost faith in governments and banks. So I think that's the simplest elevator pitch for cryptocurrency. If you want a form of money that is outside of the control of governments and that is just a more independent form of finance.
0: So let's talk about that independence, because some people who are very leery of institutions who fear that those institutions will exploit them may say, this is great because it gives me an alternative. But for some people, there may be a greater sense of security in knowing that if there is a problem, there is one central institution that they can go to. How does this play out for people who say, I don't want to take the risk versus those who like that independence?
2: So I think that's a really interesting question. And when I say that it's independent from government I don't mean that governments can't regulate it at all what I mean is that no government can set the price and governments can't issue Bitcoin for example but right now what we're seeing all over the world are governments scrambling scrambling to regulate cryptocurrency because I think you're right there are people who are uncomfortable with the idea of a kind of money that is completely out of reach of government so I think there's a difference between saying that a government can't control cryptocurrency and a government can't regulate cryptocurrency I think some some degree of government regulation probably is necessary for the industry to mature.
0: And we'll talk more about that level of regulation and oversight a little later in the show. But the question here, because I think that distinction you made is so important. We know that cryptocurrency has exploded in popularity. About 20% of Americans own at least one share of Bitcoin but that popularity has also heightened scrutiny from the federal government. How historically has cryptocurrency been regulated and what do you see changing?
2: Yes. So I think that's exactly what's happening. The explosion of cryptocurrency is catching the attention of regulators, which is totally normal. That's happening in the United States and it's happening all over the world. I think we can safely say that cryptocurrency, the debate has now firmly arrived in Washington. For example, there was a crypto tax provision that was helping hold up the infrastructure bill uh, while Congress was debating about it. So, you know, I think the issue right now in the U.S. is that, you know, you have lawmakers realizing that a lot of people, as you said, are exposed to this, this, these assets, but that there's the regulation still has a long way to go to catch up with it. So there's going to be a very steep learning curve, I think, in Washington as lawmakers sort of scramble to understand this new technology and find ways to regulate it in a way that makes sense and in a way that allows for it to grow. They, I don't think they want to stamp it out, but they want to make sure that they are able to address some of the risks that it poses to new investors.
0: There's something that you just said about that major infrastructure bill, and I think many listeners may be surprised that that bill was almost scrapped because of this outcry from crypto companies. The fact that this industry has grown enormously over time, but also has extended its influence and its political influence in this area. Talk to us a little more about those negotiations and what it means for the power of the industry to have an impact on what's happening politically and economically.
2: Yes. Yeah, so I think what we saw in the debate over the infrastructure bill, you know, this was only one part of the infrastructure bill, of course, but yeah, the crypto industry really made their voice heard. And I think that's not something that everybody was necessarily expecting because the crypto industry is by definition, very decentralized. It's sometimes very divided. There can be infighting, but on this issue, we definitely saw a lot of people come together and, you know, they made a point of it. They, they got Washington's attention. So that's, that's obviously um, a big thing. They haven't exactly gotten what they wanted. I mean, there's still sort of a long fight going forward. But, you know, basically what the crypto industry was claiming was that there was a crypto tax provision in this bill that would be very harmful to the industry. It's not that the crypto industry doesn't want to pay taxes. That's not what it's about. It had to do with a reporting requirement requirement that the industry claimed was, was sort of going to potentially even cause the crypto industry to leave the United States, because it would make it very difficult for some pivotal actors in the crypto industry to comply with these requirements. It's sort of a very specific Issue. But yeah, I mean, I think we are starting to see the power of the crypto lobby. And it's necessary because, again, I don't think that there's a high level of understanding of how crypto works in Washington. So we're going to need a very powerful effort from the industry to explain these issues and explain why it's necessary to regulate it in a certain way.
0: There's always a concern that. If the industry in question is leading that education and leading that learning, that the information they are providing may be skewed or biased in their favor. We've seen that with other industries who are fighting regulation, not in general, but regulation in terms of being overly critical. What's the risk here of having crypto lead that education?
2: Well, So I think that's a really important point. The issue with the crypto industry leading this is that, you know, cryptocurrency is still a relatively misunderstood thing in the United States. So I think the big challenge for the crypto industry is getting more ordinary Americans to care about crypto you know so with like the infrastructure bill for example you had people in the crypto industry saying this is a disaster crypto might leave the United States and I'm sure there's some people who are like okay so what you know and I think we need to make the argument or rather the crypto industry needs to make the argument for why this could affect ordinary people and I think there are some bigger arguments to be made for example you know can crypto create jobs in the United States or or why it would benefit more Americans to have exposure to this kind of new asset. I think that we're still lacking in those arguments and and a lot of people don't understand why the crypto industry is is, is good for for the U.S. and good for innovation.
0: We've started seeing companies like Visa and PayPal and MasterCard also adopt more crypto friendly practices. Do you think that that will help the public's understanding and, and also help that market sector grow by having those companies invest in the space?
2: Absolutely. It will absolutely help. And I think one of the greatest factors of the most recent or or the, the recent in terms of over the past year bull run in crypto has been institutional involvement. You know, crypto is still a very new technology and a lot of people associate it with criminality or shadiness or money laundering. So when you have these big brands come in like, you know, Visa or MasterCard, yes, I think it does reassure some people that okay this isn't a shady underground thing these are some big institutions that are getting involved so i do think it helps it's a little bit of a contradiction because crypto started as this kind of like rebellious and 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 you know countercultural force but i think having the stamp of approval by institutions definitely does create a, a greater level of comfort among a lot of investors
0: now, Emily, you are the expert in this area, and I'm just new to learning about it. So help me understand this. When we think about cryptocurrencies, should we be treating this like a legal tender like the U.S. dollar, or should I be seeing this more as an investment like I would approaching a stock? And and how do we reckon with those two views of what this is all about?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really... um that's a good question, and I don't think there's one answer. I mean, I think people use cryptocurrency for different things. I think a lot of people definitely use it as an investment. Of course, it is a very volatile investment, and 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 I think that's something that people really need to be aware of. I mean, it's it's something that you really have to have the stomach for. You know, there are really rapid fluctuations in price that sometimes are not easily explained. Um, I think you know originally Bitcoin is you know was supposed to be a form of payment, and I think there's of, uh, there's there's a lot of potential there, but that's not something that we're really seeing at a grand scale yet because I think there are still some inefficiencies. You know, one of one of the obstacles for using Bitcoin as a payment, for example, is first of all, it's still a little bit more complex than say using a credit card for the average person, but also because you know Bitcoin is um, deflationary in the sense that there's only a limited number of Bitcoin that will ever be produced, which means that there are many people who believe that holding on to Bitcoin will, you know, see an increase in value. So they're reluctant to spend it, right? If they think that they can hold their Bitcoin and their Bitcoin will go up in value, they're reluctant to spend that Bitcoin on a cup of coffee, for example. So I think the simplest answer to your question is that there are a lot of possible use cases for Bitcoin, but we still have a ways to go before we see those reach a larger scale.
0: What are stable coins and how does that play into the things you just mentioned?
2: Stable coins. Yes. Stable coins are becoming a really hot topic. So stable coins, in theory, are you know coins that are supposedly linked to you know, a fiat currency like the US dollar? So, you know, in, in theory, uh, you know, one stable coin would be backed by one US dollar. That's kind of the concept behind them. And they're often used as an on-ramp into cryptocurrency markets. So, you know, for example, if you want to trade crypto, you can trade using a stable coin rather than you know, an actual US dollar. It can be a little bit smoother. But there's a lot of controversy over stable coins because the question is, are these stable coins as stable as they are supposed to be. And there have been issues with some of the leading stable coins with people asking, are these really backed one-to-one like they say they are? And the fear is that because the stable coin industry is becoming so big and so powerful that if the stable coins are not backed as they say they are, we could see you know a real crisis in, in that area. So it's a really important part of the crypto industry, but I think there's still a lot of questions about the transparency of some of the larger stable coin issuers.
0: You know, the industry is still really young, but its potential seems limitless. Bitcoin is just 12 years old. When you look toward the future, what are some of the biggest challenges that you think we should be aware of that may be facing this market?
2: So there are so many challenges and there's probably a lot of challenges that I haven't even thought of because there's new innovations every day. But I think the biggest macro challenge will be this tension between Cryptocurrency industry and government regulation. Now, you know, as I said, government regulation is necessary for the industry. It's this is an industry that's supposed to exist completely in a different realm. And there's no way for crypto to reach mainstream adoption if there isn't some government regulation. So I don't think anybody is seriously saying that they're they don't want regulation at all, but the danger is over-regulation, right? And every country is addressing. Cryptocurrency in their own way. Um, some countries see it as an opportunity, but others see it as a threat. So I think one of the risks going forward is that some governments will see it mostly as a threat and they will regulate it to the extent now, now no government can stop cryptocurrency. That's kind of the beauty of it, right? It it, it is somewhat independent. But what they can do is they can make it very difficult for the average person to access it. You know, they can sort of find ways to sort of close down some of the on-ramps into the market. And I think that's that's something that we're going to see going forward, you know, the danger of governments making it too hard for people to access.
0: Can you imagine what cryptocurrency will look like in 10 years?
2: You know, uh, it's so it's very hard to imagine. I mean, I think we're just seeing things that I wouldn't have even thought was possible know, even a few years ago, like we have a country like El Salvador, you know, adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. That's something that was, you know, previously somewhat, somewhat unimaginable. So, you know, I think, and and again, that's still a pretty, pretty bold experiment. We don't really know how that's going to go. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different things that can happen. I mean, I think we might see more countries doing going that route. We might see there's a lot of potential for for crypto as a form of payment um, that we haven't seen realized yet. And I think there's just a lot of things that we have haven't thought of yet. I mean, this has been a very surprising industry. You know, there's all these new things happening like decentralized finance or DeFi, you know, stable coins, you know, another another thing that's happening is government backed uh, digital currencies. I think that's a, that's going to be a big trend going forward. That's completely different from Bitcoin. That's a completely different animal. That's like a government, you know, saying, okay, here is our own national digital currency. So there's just so many, so many ways that this could
0: evolve. Emily Parker is Managing Director at Coindesk and co-host of the morning show, First Mover. Emily, thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Coming up, a conversation about cryptocurrency and generational wealth for communities of color. And later, a look at the first large scale test for Bitcoin. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted, I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Coming up later in the show, we'll hear about a controversial change in El Salvador and what the embrace of Bitcoin there could mean for the rest of the world. For many Americans, cryptocurrency is a way to combat wealth inequality here in our country. And after centuries of exclusionary practices in the banking industry, there's hope that crypto could be different. According to research from the University of Chicago, Black Americans are more likely to invest in cryptocurrency than more traditional stocks. But the crypto market continues to be dominated by white men. How can we make the industry more inclusive for all? Clev Mesidor joins us now. She's founder of the National Policy Network of Women of Color and Blockchain and public policy consultant for the Blockchain Association. Clev, welcome to Disrupted.
3: Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be having this conversation.
0: So, you know, the, the traditional banking system has a well-deserved reputation of being very exclusionary and of preventing people of color, not just from participating, but really benefiting in the long-term. And now there's a push for those same communities to invest in cryptocurrency as a way of building generational wealth. For our listeners who may not be as familiar with this practice and the community, tell us exactly how this works and why crypto is so alluring when it comes to investment.
3: You know, a lot of people are excited about Bitcoin. They hear the buzz, but they don't understand what it is. The one thing to understand is, you know, Bitcoin is one of the Almost ten thousand cryptocurrencies out there, but it is the most important one for Black communities to invest in. Well, Black, Latinx, Asian, American, you know, LGBTQ. I tell people that blockchain, right, is technology that securely verifies information, facilitates the exchange of value without third parties. But at the end of the day, it's about economic empowerment. It's about transacting in, in a different way. And it's about cryptography, a different way to build on, on, on digital money. We've been talking about digital money for a long time. And for those of us who, for those people who say, you know, cryptocurrency is fake money, I tell them your credit card balance is fake money. <laughs>
0: It's all about how we navigate that, but also it's about changing a culture and a mindset about what ownership looks like and and what realness, as you said, looks like. All of this sounds appealing. All of it sounds attractive. And when we look at the data right now, we see roughly equal participation in cryptocurrency across groups. But there is a fear that this market will follow the historic trends of other forms of currency and engagement. So how do we prevent crypto from becoming yet another economic sector that disproportionately benefits those who already have access to wealth? And in particular, when we think about race and gender and who benefits from this market?
3: Excellent question. Because we we have lost the mark, right? We did miss the boat so many times. And so so what I say about decentralization is the fact that it diminishes the barriers to entry. You don't have to have a degree to go into the cryptocurrency market. You don't even have to, you know, know how to code, right? You can actually right now, you know, you have a e business. I'm an e um, commerce business. You can actually just create a merchant account to accept cryptocurrency. You know, you can. Can actually get a certificate course to to gain additional training. But yes, I will say, you know, one of the misnomers is the fact that Black people are not in crypto. As a crypto industry leader, there are many of us, and we've been there from the beginning. Unfortunately, we don't have the funding to, to move forward our projects. But when it comes to financial inclusion, It is Black innovators in crypto, Latinx innovators of crypto, LGBT innovators of crypto that are actually advancing financial inclusion here in the US for the 55 million who are unbanked, right? The industry has done a great job abroad overseas in Latin America, you know, on the continent, but we have to address that issue here. Now, stepping back, you know, let's be honest, you know, for Black, Latinx, LGBTQ folks, We are very conservative when it comes to investing. We, you know, we're innovative, we're visionary, but we are not risk takers. So as a result, we tend to be late adapters. We tend to get in when the only option is to be a consumer. And right now is the best time for us to be producers, for us to be at the onset, the early stages of this economy that's in its infancy. Right. So, so we have to do more in terms of financial literacy. We have to do more in terms of consumer protections. You know, One of the things I tell people is that the infrastructure bill that's going to be voted on has tons of money for digital inf- infrastructure, financial literacy, research and development, preparing you know, people for the jobs and industries of the future. And that includes cryptocurrency and you know, Black and Latinx innovators, I know we're going to talk about some, are, are well-positioned to leverage this technology to do just that, prepare, you know, economically disadvantaged communities, historically economically disadvantaged communities for the jobs and, and, and careers of the future. So, you know, we have to take more risks. Yes, be pragmatic about investing in cryptocurrencies and stepping in, but also take a leap of faith.
0: So let's take a step back because what you've laid out is not just about cryptocurrency and about these sort of new economic opportunities. It is a part of a long standing challenge for these communities who not just have been underrepresented, but have been under-networked to connect into those pieces of feeling this level of mistrust about institutions, this feeling of being uh, pushed out of those spaces where one's entrepreneurship and ingenuity could really thrive. And at the core of that, Clev, is this notion of trust. So we see that these communities... Don't trust those in these positions to think in their best behalf, and that's really important when we talk about the crypto market. We know that the industry has seen a number of pump and dump schemes with people just trying to make a quick buck, and that can be particularly damaging for the communities that you mentioned who already are in this vulnerable state. What advice do you you give to people who may be new to investing and want to avoid becoming victims of those scams to be able to navigate wisely?
3: yes there's a saying trust but ver- verify that's all about crypto in crypto trust is a big important of, component of decentralization even the whole you know bitcoin was created around people who trusted this create this this thing and made it real so for so for communities of color for historically disadvantaged of community historically disadvantaged communities we have to verify. That means do your research. I tell people all the time, you know, if anyone tells you are going to get rich, you know, by selling your home and doing something, That's not true. So, the great thing about cryptocurrencies is it's like layaway. You don't have to buy a whole cryptocurrency. The price of Bitcoin is around 50,000. So, for our communities, we need to know you can buy $10, $25, dip your toe in, right? And also, there are about 10,000 cryptocurrencies out there, but we know there are only about 10 that are viable. Stick with the ones you know. I tell people that. You know, I, I don't recommend these, but for new people, you can buy Bitcoin on Cash App or PayPal. There's limitations on when you withdraw your money, and Robinhood as well. But if you're gonna just start, you already have these apps. You already trust these apps. Dip, dip your fit in, f- foot in there, twenty-five dollars. Start. See how if you know. See how you like being part of the Bitcoin or cryptocurrency revolution, and then open a wallet, right? And I recommend you know there are so many Black innovators who have created to go there. But, you know, I think we're justified in being cautious and we absolutely should be. Unfortunately, I love this space and been in it, but there's a, there are a lot of pump and dump schemes and there's a lot of hype, right? And, and, and right now we have to learn how to filter out the no- noise, but do not sit back, right? Do not, do not, you know, st- be on the sidelines.
0: Let's talk about that filtering and that familiarity. Because the other thing that I've noticed in this space is that entrepreneurs are looking to these communities, particularly black communities, as potential spaces for growth. What do you think is the impact of startups like GuapCoin and Black Wall Street? What do you think is their impact in the industry? And do you expect those ventures to succeed in this space?
3: First, I absolutely expect them to, to to succeed. I call them Fubu Blockchain for us by us. <laughs> I've just coined the term, but this is very important. Economic empowerment means that we have to create our own wealth, right? And if if blockchain and cryptocurrencies decentralize, we're diminishing the barriers to entry. That means we can really use, you know, our, our, our disposable income in our community, right? That means we don't have to just buy, you know, Facebook's stuff or Google's stuff or just Amazon. We can be niche and focus. So I love GwapCoin. Tavonia Evans, you know, a, a, an entrepreneur who I know well, created Guapcoin in 2017. It is a current cryptocurrency. And she first started it because of the Build Black Movement, Buy Black Movement. And she wanted to make sure that we're saying buy black, but how do we ensure that the the the, the, the money stays in our community? So she created a cryptocurrency, which is by no means easy. And she, she launched Grab Point, she created Grab Points to, to fuel the buy black movement, but also to empower you know, black consumers and also, you know, black businesses. Now I'm excited about what Hill Harper and Naja Roberts are doing with the Black Wall Street app. So they've created a digital wallet, you know, which is focused on targeting communities of color, Latinx communities, black, black Black communities to make sure that there's a wallet that you can buy your Bitcoin on, but you can also get information, financial literacy, you know, learn about digital currencies. And I love both of these projects because they are focused on responsible engagement, right? They're focused on not only getting Black, Latinx, LGBTQ people in this space, but also educating them. And the reason I'm confident they will succeed is because the market place is changing. The marketplace is browner and younger, right? So crypto is not a place where people should be sitting at home and saying, oh, who's a celebrity? Who's this big figure and how should I follow them? No, this is your opportunity to go, oh, my, my, my neighbor next door created an NFT. I'm going to support my neighbor next door's NFT. So I think you know, for, for, for black and brown communities, we've created this culture, this network, this enthusiasm. Now we can use it to support us. And we need to start with you know, Guapcoin and the Black Wall Street app
0: using those networks using that access to demand something that is sustainable and something that is not just transactional applies to so many areas when we talk about these communities asserting their voice, particularly in the political space. And you were part of an effort last year, uh, among several prominent members of the blockchain community, to urge the Biden administration to address issues of diversity and cryptocurrency. What role do you think government should play in making the blockchain a more equitable space for all?
3: Excellent question, right? Because what we've seen is, you know, especially in Washington and Capitol Hill, we've seen Republicans embrace blockchain, and we've seen Democrats very cautious about it, right? And that's absolutely great. We need debate, and we need to look at all sides. But as a result, right, the communities we're talking about are typically supported by Democrats, right? You know, the CBC, the Black Caucus, the Progressive Caucus. And so they cannot be so stringent about their positions, right? Because, yes, we need to focus on consumer protections. Yes, we need to make sure that financial literacy is being had. We need to make sure that Black Latinx communities are not being squandered out of their money or scams are not running rampant. But we also, they also need to make sure that this marketplace of, you know, thriving Black Latinx innovators are not pushed out of the space. Because the stricter the regulations, the harder it is for us to participate. We should be responsible. We should focus on education, but we should also focus on diversity and inclusion. And that means that we have to recognize the thriving, diverse marketplace that exists, that ecosystem that is being fueled by innovators and entrepreneurs, and make sure while we're having conversation about what is a what is a security, what's not a security? How should we regulate stable coins? you know how do we ensure exchanges follow AML and KYC compliance? We have to make sure that we're also talking about how do we ensure access to capital to micro enterprises in crypto, but how do we provide more funding for the financial literacy that GropCoin wants to do? So we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. so we have to recognize, The landscape has changed, the playing field has changed, and we have to make sure that we're empowering we're resourcing the micro enterprises we have to make sure that there's not roadblocks for them and if black innovators are not going to Washington are not having this conversation they're not gonna see us in this space and they're not gonna hear from us and they're not gonna understand how do they create and and craft these legislations so that they can hold the large players accountable but also make sure that they're fueling this important ecosystem
0: Clev Mestador is founder of the National Policy Network of Women of Color in Blockchain and public policy consultant for the Blockchain Association. Clev, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. After the break, we go international for a conversation about Bitcoin in El Salvador and what it may signal for the rest of the world. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. They're going to spend $200 million
3: on this? All right, so have you sorted out the rest of our problems? Have you sorted out education or health care? Well, there's a lot more problems to solve after that, before you come and impose a law that Salvadorans don't agree with.
0: That's Denise Estrada, a student protester speaking with Al Jazeera. Earlier this month, El Salvador became the first country in the world to accept Bitcoin as legal tender. The decision was panned by experts and has resulted in protests against the law and the nation's popular president. But cryptocurrency proponents are applauding the change and hoping El Salvador becomes a template for other countries. Ricardo Barrientos is chief economist at the Central American Institute for Fiscal Studies. He's been following the response to Bitcoin in El Salvador, and he joins us now. Ricardo, welcome to Disrupted.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being with you this this morning.
0: So our audience may not be as familiar with the history of El Salvador, but I think it's important to think about the country's past and the decades long civil war that continues to shape The present. In 2001, the country made the switch from its nationally run currency to the U.S. dollar. Walk us through that transition and also how the U.S. dollar is viewed today in the country.
1: Like other Central American societies, it's it's a society that is is struggling to overcome the, the, the problems of a long lasting civil war. As part of this geopolitics uh, situation and environment, El Salvador has always uh, had a strong relationship with the United States. Uh, Back 30 years ago, uh, because it was one of the very heated points of the Cold War, and now it's a country that um, a very large, large proportion of its population is living in the United States as uh, migrants and working there and sending remittances. So a large part of the economy, of the the Salvadorian economy depends of these remittances that Salvadorians living and working in the U.S. uh, send to their families in El Salvador. So uh, when the decision was uh, taken to dollarize the economy, so this uh, relationship between the two countries, Salvador and the United States, becomes even stronger. Every economic relationship depends on the American currency. So, uh, thus, that has had uh, um, good consequences and bad uh, for traders, international traders, importers, and exporters. It was a good thing, but maybe for workers. Uh, the value of its money got reduced over time. So that is a very important thing to take in account in the current situation with this Bitcoin uh, issue because uh, not everybody in El Salvador uh, got benefits uh, uh, from dollarization. So it's a complex situation that requires a very deep analysis.
0: I want to focus on something that you just said, which is the question of who benefits And when we talk about partnerships, who benefits in terms of the relationships between countries, but also the relationships within countries, with many people being concerned that going toward the U.S. dollar meant that the country of El Salvador was losing control over its economy or becoming dependent on the good graces of other countries. Do you think that concern about power and control and and self-determination has played out in the country? Or do you think this was a relationship that was able to benefit broadly, even if we saw these differences?
1: Well, we at ISEFI, the Central American Institute of Fiscal Studies, uh, usually uh, paint this uh, cartoon, this picture, that uh, an economy like one of El Salvador, dollarizing its economy, uh, like uh, 20 years ago, is like eating Chinese food with only one chopstick. (laughs) Because usually uh, to eat Chinese food, you need two uh, chopsticks. Uh, So to conduct an economy in the broader terms, you need monetary policy and fiscal policy. And when you dollarize an economy, you lose monetary policy. So you, the only tool, the only chopstick you have left is a fiscal policy, and that can create some trouble, some complications. The lesson that El Salvador learned about dollarization 20 years ago is that it's an option, but you have to be very careful. You have to be very prudent.
0: So let's talk about that movement to Bitcoin in El Salvador. And so we can't talk about the move toward Bitcoin in that country without talking about the president, Nayib Bukele. What type of president is he and what do you think motivated him to push toward adopting Bitcoin as the legal currency?
1: Nayib Bukele, without and without this question, it's a political phenomenon in the whole Western Hemisphere. It's a very interesting political movement. Uh, he's a millennial. He's a very young uh, uh, political character uh, with a kind of attractive personality. He, he broke with the traditional way to do politi- politics in, in El Salvador. Usually El Salvador uh, has a kind of bipartisan political system, but Nayib Bukele and New Ideas, Nuevas Ideas, this is the name of the political party of uh, Nayib Bukele, broke with this tradition of bi- bipartisan two-party system. And with the name New Ideas, uh, huge expectations, huge hopes, especially in a very young population in Central America, population is very young. And um, at the end of 2020, and the beginning of this 2021, he enjoyed a enjoyed huge popular support and trust, but it is dangerous too. He started to make moves in a dictatorship path. He captured the, the Supreme Court. He captured the general attorney office, he captured the whole General Assembly, and he has started to to take some decisions in a very anti-democratic way. Uh, Bitcoin is one of them and maybe it's the first turning point in a political way. The Bitcoin issue should be a technical issue, should be an issue, a discussion, a debate of monetary policy. But uh, because of the style of President Bukele, uh, it it has become a political issue, which is very dangerous because you cannot play with the economy of a country, especially if you are uh, uh, fighting a politics squirrel between opposition and government.
0: Now, I want to remind our listeners that the president was elected in in 2019 and we're in 2021, and that is a short amount of time to see such massive capture of all of these key functions of a country that, as you say, have such potential to not just be political issues, but really be life and death choices for people in a country. And you mentioned you know, the popularity of American presidents. I think the last time that we saw approval numbers approaching that level was back in 2001 when George W. Bush was president in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, of people saying, we will put our trust in you as president to do something different. So there's always that struggle between a president's popularity and how they choose to use it. What has been the response amongst the public in El Salvador to this announcement of moving toward Bitcoin and what you're seeing now with the actual rollout since September 7th?
1: If you browse the social networks among Salvadorians. It is funny because uh, Salvadorians has adopted this language in social media between uh, the so-called irrelevant against uh, the so-called seals. In the early 2021, uh, President Angie Bukele started to call the opposition the the irrelevant ones, because Uh, they were such a small fraction of Salvadorian society and the opposition started to call seals because in the aquariums, the seals that usually clapped in a a quite irrational way, right? The Bukele followers started to say yes whatever decision he he took and uh, not doesn't matter if it is uh, reasonable or correct, but if it is the a, a, a president' decision, we should support that. And that is a very dangerous formula. And clearly it's not a way to do things in a functional democracy. Because in a functional democracy, citizens should have a critical view, a very reasonable way to see and understand what the government is doing. So, the turning point, the inflection point may be this Bitcoin decision because a lot of uh, warnings uh, among the uh, technicians, the experts, the economists started to warn, hey, this is a major monetary policy policy decisions and this can be harmful. This can hurt people because the whole idea more or less is that since a lot of Salvadorians live in the U.S. as migrants, and they are working and sending remittances. Using a cryptocurrency may help to reduce cost of transferring uh, transferring these remittances from the U.S. to El Salvador, saving the um, the fees that usually banks charge for the remittances. This was the idea, but problems with cryptocurrencies is that they are highly volatile and the law that was issued by the uh, Salvadoran assembly in June, for example, say that you can pay taxes with this Bitcoin cryptocurrency. Wages can be paid in cryptocurrency. So for example, then it started to arise some kind of situations. If you are going to receive a payment, what do you prefer? Receiving in US dollars or receiving in Bitcoin? That is different. That is a whole different thing and um, people started to feel uh, distrust to the decision. And then uh, it was clear that uh, the decision was not supported by sound macroeconomic analysis. There were no consultation. There were not following the international standards. So uh, what is happening now is that uh, the seals clapping proportion of the Salvadorians is reducing very rapidly. Most Salvadorians uh, seems to distrust Bitcoin. And uh, uh, clearly, I think uh, uh, President Bukele made a mistake uh, uh, a couple of days, of days ago, uh, major protest happened in San Salvador city. And many people, the non-relevant started to become more and more relevant, uh, started to say no to one decision. And this will be the first major setback in the Bukele administration.
0: There's a lot of risk embedded in cryptocurrency. There is tremendous opportunity to exploit people who are already vulnerable in a country. You have covered this region for quite a long time. What are the lessons that you think Americans should learn and think about from this experience in El Salvador and the the broader potential of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency for countries?
1: In plain words, what the economists are saying, and the Basel Committee for Banking Security and Safety and so on so forth is don't play with things that aren't toys. That is a huge lesson. If the monetary policy of a country is not a toy, and when a politician starts to play with things in a country that are not toys, then trouble is coming for sure. Cryptocurrencies may offer advantages and may offer some important benefits to some. One lesson is that some is not everybody. And another lesson is that these are delicate matters. So listen to the experts. Listen to the people who know. What happens is that one of the so-called Bitcoiners is a close friend to uh, one of uh, President Bukele's brothers. So it was like a, a, a family thing that has a name, an ugly name, and that is corruption. Uh, when these kind of decisions are not taken in the public interest, but in the uh, following uh, interest of a particular person or sector that is, should receive for disaster or trouble. So for the Americans, if that kind of decision is going to be taken, well, the the Federal Reserve should be part of it right now. Even in history, a bank note was a promise and it was signed by some authority. It was a promise to pay in hard currency, gold or whatever, uh, the value of what the note says. So uh, uh, managing a currency, it's a question of trust. So that is a strong lesson that uh, Salvadorians are learning the hard way.
0: I think those are critically important lessons when we think about a number of political and economic issues. Don't play with things that are not toys. Listen to the experts and think about that trust. Ricardo Barrientos is chief economist at the Central American Institute for Fiscal Studies. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you very much for having me today.
0: This week's episode was produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. Before we go, this month marks one year since we launched the show, and this last year and a half have been disruptive in so many ways for all of us. We want to hear from you. What's a disruption shaping your life that you're most worried about? And what's a disruption that's giving you hope? You can send a voice memo to disrupted at ctpublic.org and we'll feature some of our favorites on an upcoming episode. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.